Welcome back, everybody. I hope lunch was enjoyable. My name is Trevor Burris. I'm a research fellow here at the Cato Institute, and I'm the managing editor of the Supreme Court Review. This is the fourth year I've been managing editor, third year. It's about my seventh. It's my seventh Constitution Day overall. Um, always a pleasure to be here. I always get the potpourri panel on Constitution Day, which means I have to come up with some sort of theme to unify these cases together. And I was informed by David Post that actually sex offense is the underlying offense in his case. And of course, uh, the, in, the, in the Packingham case, we had sex offender status. And then we have insider trading. You can draw any connections between those you might want. Uh, I'm not going to do that. And of course, every time we say sex offender, remember, we have to do this in, in all seriousness. Uh, I will introduce the speakers before they speak. Uh, their full buyers are avail available in your materials, so I'll just give some brief introductory remarks. First, we're going to have David T. Goldberg, who joined the Stanford Law School Supreme Court Litigation Clinic in 2016. Before that, he taught for a decade at the University of Virginia, where he co-founded and co-directed the Law School Supreme Court Clinic. He has participated in roughly 150 cases at the Supreme Court, including 20 merit stage cases. And he once represented James Brown, the godfather of soul, which is the most important thing on your resume. So I want to hear all about that, but please welcome David. Thank you, Trevor, and thank you uh, to Cato for organizing this uh, and for all that you do, uh, except the stuff that I disagree with, which I <laughs> vehemently condemn. But, um, and, and before I start, I also want to acknowledge there's a co-author of the article about Packingham, Emily Zhang, uh, who worked with me on the case. And um, I, we were told that only one person could present the paper. And I think having me here um, is a little bit like inviting, uh, inviting uh, Edgar Bergen, uh, inviting Charlie McCarthy instead of Ed Edgar Bergen. <laughs> But I'm going to do my best, and, and happy Constitution Day to everybody. Um, and I think Packingham is in some ways a great case to celebrate on Constitution Day because it's an example of uh, the First Amendment and the Britain Constitution working as a bulwark of liberty, of equality, and basic human decency. It's also a case of the Supreme Court um, doing the right thing and performing its function. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that because in the area of uh, sex offense cases, the Supreme Court has had a somewhat checkered recent history. Um, I should say, and I think you've already gleaned this, that I'm not objective about this. We represented J.R. Packingham, and so the fact that we say it was a great day and a, um, the Supreme Court did the right thing is you can take that with with a grain of salt. Um, the first thing, the, the basic facts of Packingham are, are crystal clear and undisputed. Basically, uh, J.R. Packingham is somebody who was on a registry in North Carolina for something he had done. Um, he had pleaded guilty to taking indecent liberties with a minor uh, 10 years earlier. And he uh, was in traffic court, and he beat a traffic ticket. And he got on Facebook and said, Man, God is good. Um, uh, thank you, Jesus. Uh, he is a very religious person. That was not; that, those were not just figures of speech. And uh, it happened that there was a uh, Durham police officer who had heard about North Carolina's law, which allow, which prohibits people on registries from 
from accessing social media websites. And so he's sitting in the precinct, decided to search the list, compare it to uh, people on Facebook, and he found J.R. Packingham. They went to his house. They arrested him. They had a search warrant for all of his computer drives. They didn't find anything inculpatory in any way, but they still prosecuted him for this one post. The only evidence against him was this post that said, um, thank you, Jesus. And he was convicted, um, and it went up to the North Carolina Supreme Court, which said that the law was perfectly constitutional um, in all respects. So when we took this case to, to the US Supreme Court, um, our position was uh, it's perfectly unconstitutional in, in many obvious ways. Um, in some way, and we said, and the, the court's opinion ultimately says, this is one of the most straightforward, easy uh, free speech cases that the, the Supreme Court was going to see. And, and the reasons why are, first of all, this case involves speech, um, which a lot of the recent free speech cases uh, involve things that are protected under the First Amendment. But if you were hearing about data mining or cake baking or registering trademarks, those are not necessarily the first things that come to mind when you think of the freedom of speech. And J.R. Packingham was speaking about a government proceeding, and he was expressing his religious views, and he was doing it in the place where uh, Americans increasingly exercise their most important First Amendment rights, petitioning, association, speech, free exercise, receiving information. Um, there are 2 billion people now on Facebook. Um, and we all know that the president has a very active social media uh, presence. And everyone, I think, I think all 100 senators have Twitter feeds and Facebook pages and everyone in North Carolina. So um, he was excluded from that on, on criminal pain of punishment. And obviously, the other thing that made the case uh, extraordinary is that he didn't do anything uh, wrong in a certain sense, and we would say in any sense. He did not cause any harm. He did not intend to cause any harm. Um, the entire theory of the case was that, or, or of the law, was that people like him have a propensity uh, to do bad things and that speaking or using the internet would enable them um, to those people to do bad things. And so this was a felony. He didn't get prison time, but it was he had a felony conviction for a speech that no one claimed uh, caused any harm or intended to cause any harm. And the, the North Carolina Supreme Court had upheld the law on the theory that this was conduct regulation, which is something that courts tend to do whenever they want to uphold the law and they can't think of uh, any, any good doctrinal reason to do it that really couldn't possibly hold up because the conduct here was accessing social media, but what they sought to prevent was pure protected free speech activity. So obviously, you could not prohibit accessing the New York Times or the NewYorkTimes.com. The act of accessing was criminalized in order to prevent um, a certain kind of speech and receipt of information. So, so and even if it were conduct, uh, the law would have been unconstitutional under the First Amendment because that would trigger intermediate scrutiny. And the big question in intermediate scrutiny is, does the law reach far beyond, or does a lot of what the law punishes and prohibits go beyond 
the government's interest. And here, too, J.R. Packingham's case was the most vivid example of something that does not implicate the actual interest in protecting children or protecting anyone from abuse of speech. He was exercising uh, you know, innocent, uh, fully protected rights. So that wasn't going to work. And the, the state's overall theory, and I think it's just an intuition, that we were, we were struggling against the whole time was, isn't it OK? Uh, because this will make people safer. Um, if we prohibit this speech, there will be less bad things will happen. Um, and that is not, the Supreme Court for 100 years has essentially said, that is not a valid theory under the First Amendment. Um, it, it said it in a very innocuous and pithy way that you can't prohibit littering in order to, uh, excuse me, prohibit leafleting in order to prohibit littering, prevent littering. But they also said it fairly recently in a case called Ashcroft versus Free Speech Coalition, which was about the possession of um, virtual child pornography, which is these images that are, are computer generated, but that look like child pornography. And the court, the, the government, that was a federal statute, and the government said there are congressional findings that say this material enables predators and pedophiles to overcome the resistance of children. And so therefore, in order to prevent this harm, uh, we are entitled to prohibit it, even if it's not obscene. And the Supreme Court somewhat remarkably said, um, we were, I know the panel today was talking, earlier today was talking about how strong the Roberts Court is for, um, for the First Amendment. In that case, uh, the court said you can't prohibit candy or comic books, which could be used uh, also to overcome the resistance. So essentially, virtual child pornography is in the same category. So, so the court had shown the courage of its convictions uh, on, this, on, on this scenario. And yet, um, we, uh, one never wants to be overconfident. And there really was reason. There was a First Amendment principle that was at stake in Packingham. And that's mostly what um, our article talks about. And it's the principle that the First Amendment rights, the First Amendment rights belong to everybody. And that there are not uh, speaker-based exceptions. And the fact that this law targeted a certain subset of speakers should make it more problematic under the Constitution, not less. Um, and, and when you say that, um, that also sounds like First Amendment 101, right? Because the court has increasingly said that speaker-based distinctions are troubling in their own right. And the history of the First Amendment is protecting unpopular and, and despised people. But um, there's also a strong sense, and again, we, it couldn't be dismissed, and it showed up in the final opinions of the court, that uh, sex offenders are different and registered sex offenders. As, Trevor said, there's a question of whether we put things in quotation marks. Um, we called people who are on registries registrants because there is this fundamental confusion between people who are going to commit sex offenses, people who do it, and people who are on registries who include a range of people, some of whom have never been convicted of any sexual offense at all, some of whom uh, were convicted a very long time ago. So um, the, the reality uh, the present-day reality, we were just talking before the, the panel started about how extreme uh, various government actions targeted at, at registered sex offenders are these days. During the recent hurricane in Florida, a 
county sheriff tweeted out a message uh, in the middle as, as people were preparing for this life-threatening storm, uh, registered sex offenders, you better not show up at the shelter, I will arrest you. Um, and that kind of swagger and that kind of uh, indifference is, is typical of, of many ways that the law currently treats uh, registered sex offenders. They are essentially in many places condemned to uh, government-enforced homelessness. They are not allowed to work or live with their families. Um, J.R. Packingham had had two run-ins that didn't lead to any criminal things, but he had gotten a job at a shopping mall, and it turned out a daycare center opened in the mall, and that meant he couldn't be couldn't work there. And then at another time, he was living rented an apartment, and he was told he had to move because uh, there was a, a childcare facility that somebody had opened within a thousand feet of his home. So, so that's very typical of what, um, there is this pervasive sense that anything goes, that you can take anything away from people who are on registries. Um, and, and that was, um, in, in this case, there really was this intuition that this is what North Carolina argued was, it, it, we know that uh, this is different from what we do to anybody else. We couldn't do this to anybody else, but we do things like that to people on registries all the time. And they said the fact that we can keep people from parks and from the General Assembly and from restaurants and jobs and everything else is a sign, that should be interpreted as a sign that they have a second-class degraded citizenship status um, and so maybe the First Amendment doesn't apply to them the same way it does to everybody else. And, and very specifically, if you look at the famous public forum case, Hague versus CIO, where the court said, um, you know, the sidewalks and streets and public spaces belong to the public uh, since time immemorial for purposes of free speech or words to that effect, um, it turns out that registered sex offenders in North Carolina don't have access to any of those places. And so the question is, why should it be um, any different? Why, why should Facebook be any different? Um, and, and the second thing that, that we worried over was that the Supreme Court, as I said, has played a very complex but important role in this development where there is this status-based, uh, this status of being a registrant that, that deeply affects your your citizenship rights. And, and it's interesting because the court had never, had never, and has never upheld a substantive restriction uh, that is based on registry status. So it has not upheld um, residency limitations. It has not upheld uh, any of those public place limitations. Um, and in fact, the two cases that address registration requirements most expansively in these 2003 cases both of which are called Doe, and every case in this area, uh, except Packingham is called Doe. Our table of authorities was just Doe, Doe, Doe. Um, in, in the Doe cases, one was from Connecticut and one was from Alaska. Um, the court actually was, the holding was fairly narrow in both cases. The court took these classical uh, registration requirements and said, look, all this is requiring is disclosure of truthful information first uh, to the government, and then the government disseminated it to the public. But in the Alaska case, they said, look, we're not taking anything away from you. We're not, the, the state is not uh, saying, restricting where you can live and work. 
And in the Connecticut case, um, they said the Connecticut challengers said we'd like to be determined it, whether we're actually still currently dangerous. And again, the, the court said no, that you don't have a procedural due process right to that because um, this is not a representation that you're dangerous, it's just a representation that you committed a crime and were convicted of a crime and the, the public um, can do with that what it will. Um, so, so the holdings of those cases did not support what has been going on. And, and when I say these laws have been enacted, they've also been upheld all over the country, and that's really important. And, and one of the primary bases for upholding them has been uh, the things that the Supreme Court has said and the things that it said even in these Doe cases when it, the holdings were quite narrow. Um, they, they essentially said, the court said, you, it's, the state is free to treat uh, registrants as an undifferentiated group and they repeated language from their prior opinions that said these very uh, deeply concerning things, that saying that sex offenders are essentially the most dangerous people, they can't help themselves, they recidivate at extraordinary rates. Um, and these were things that had appeared in earlier opinions with citations to Justice Department um, uh, evidence that, that, as you'll hear a little bit later, uh, was, was itself deeply flawed. So, so there was the sense that the Supreme Court had um, created, or at least encouraged some of this, partly advertently and partly inadvertently. Um, and so there was real worry. And so, so again, the, the reason uh, it's a good case to talk about on Constitution Day is, is as a matter of um, sex offender exceptionalism or as a matter of uh, First Amendment generality, the court did the right thing in Packingham. Uh, the opinion was written by Justice Kennedy who had actually written a couple of the earlier, one of the Doe cases and a case called McCune versus Lyle which had been the source of some of these very frothy uh, statements about how dangerous uh, people are that had been interpreted to, to apply to people on registries. Um, and and if you heard, I think, on the earlier panel, uh, the, the court's opinion, as I said, did the right thing. If you, if you read the language of the opinion, it's pretty clear that what the court wanted to talk about was social media and the internet and how great that is. Um, and there are some, some Justice Kennedy gems in the opinion about how people can define themselves and uh, through, through their participation on social media. And the court wasn't especially interested in taking on this sort of what, what we thought was the really important First Amendment question head on. But it really did, if you read the opinion as a case about registrants and exceptionalism, it's a very strong uh, opinion because the court no longer talks about these statistics and no longer uh, uses these generalities from the other opinions. And it talks about uh, people who are in registries as persons who have been previously convicted and it talks about them as people who have the need, maybe trying to reform their lives and have a special need to access uh, speech and to speak and to interact with the public. And so it's, it's fundamentally human and at the most basic level, the very fact that the court played it straight and applied general First Amendment principles is itself a great victory for this First Amendment principle. And um, so, so, that, so that, that's the majority opinion. Um, there is also a concurrence, and that uh, Justice Alito wrote the concurrence for three justices. 
Um, and that is not uh, as encouraging. Um, if you start reading it, it sounds, the, the main themes, uh, and again, I think this came up in the first panel, are caution and restraint, which is not surprising from Justice Alito, who has, in a number of First Amendment cases, resisted and questioned some of the um, no exceptions, very high level of generality, uh, things that the court has said about the First Amendment. At the same time, the concurrence was joined by uh, Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Thomas, who have been um, in cases like Stevens and Reed versus Town of Gilbert, have been some of the most uh, aggressive champions of this, no exceptions. Uh, and and the, the restraint, the, the basic debate about restraint and caution was uh, Justice Alito said we should be restrained about recognizing First Amendment rights, um, and the majority said we should be restrained and cautious about re re recognizing First Amendment exceptions. Um, and again, uh, the Chief and Justice Thomas generally have been on, on the, that side in most other cases. And if you, you read the, the Alito opinion, um, it's pretty clear that what we called sex offender exceptionalism is the the reason why the, they were uncomfortable uh, with the case. And so um, the opinion repeats a lot of the things that have been said in the prior opinions and some of the statistics, and it introduces some of its own about assertions about um, social media being exceptionally dangerous to, to teenagers. Um, and, and that prompted this, uh, you know, what I think is a pretty extraordinary moment in the, in the life of the court, um, a fact check from the Washington Post, which said Justice Alito's misleading claim about sex offender rearrests. And it uh, goes on to take on some of these statistics. In some ways, it's not entirely fair. Justice Alito took these from things that appeared in, in prior opinions, but it dissects um, uh, some of the errors that have crept in and the way in which these things that made it into a DOJ report and then made it into a Solicitor General brief and then made it into a Supreme Court opinion have become the law uh, across the country. If the Supreme Court says that sex offenders reoffend at drastically different rates and in a way that's different in kind from anybody else, lower courts are not going to question that. And so, so this fact check, I think, um, represented a, I don't think it was a welcome development uh, on First Street, but it's a very interesting, important development. I'm, I'll just as I wrap up, I'll talk a little bit about what the significance of Packingham may be or uh, could be. And I think there are three things that, that can be said. One is it will affect uh, the First Amendment rights of people who are not on registries. And I think there was talk earlier today about because Justice Kennedy's opinion said some very quotable things about um, social media, and he did say that social media is the public forum of our time, uh, it's very likely that that, that um, rhetoric will be very important in cases where there's a lot of uh, panic and anxiety about social media, which leads to uh, legislation and policies that gets challenged. And so that there's no doubt that the case will be important in that way, just like what the court said in the Doe cases was important. Um, the second thing is, is will it do anything to sort of stem the tide of this culture of, uh, of, of uh, relegating people on registries to second class 
status and there's a way in which you wouldn't expect because this is the First Amendment and that is itself a muscular exception uh, to the kind of judicial review you get in other cases. Um, we, in our article, say we think there's more of a chance that this will will help and it's partly because there are other forces in, uh, in society that are uh, people in law enforcement have have now questioned a lot of the certainly the residency limitations to some extent the um, even the registration requirements themselves whether they really help uh, Patty Wetterling who is the mother of the child af after whom the federal statute was named has be become an advocate uh, saying that the laws have gone too far um, and I think that again the fact check has really had, and it's not just the Washington Post, the New York Times did a story and a little documentary this week about this issue. I think that the, these statistics and this way of thinking have really been uh, dirtied up in a way that the lower courts and, and states are no longer going to be able to rely on just these very casual assertions um, and Packingham by not endorsing that and saying some of the things it did say about people being individuals and, and treating uh, Packingham and people like him as having presumptively entitled to First Amendment rights is going to is going to help. Um, the final thing is I think um, the fact check, bless you, uh, surfaced a whole um, set of questions that are, are are really interesting and important in Supreme Court practice and and in our in our system, our judicial system. I think a lot of people have talked about the empirical turn in constitutional law that questions, constitutional questions in, increasingly depend on empirical propositions. Um, and there's been a lot of attention to amicus briefs and facts and amicus briefs. And, and it's a, it turns out to be a really extremely difficult thing. The, I, the, the job that the Supreme Court does in our system is to announce rules general rules, and we want the court to be aware of what some people sometimes call the legislative facts, the facts that are outside the record. Um, it really wouldn't make sense for the court to decide cases any other way, but um, it's also deeply inconsistent with ideas of procedural due process, and also which would protect essentially fairness and accuracy in this case. Um, and this history and the trajectory of these statistics is a great example of how the Supreme Court can find facts. And when we you know, not find them in the traditional judicial sense, but it can go out uh, on the internet and write an opinion that includes a factual assertion that then has vast effect uh, throughout the entire, entire legal system. And so that's, I think, people inside the court, people who practice before the court, um, are going to be thinking about this issue a lot and how um, there have been other uh, similar problems that have been flagged about things that the court has said as factual statements and opinions and the court really has never um, come up with a procedure or a way of, of thinking about that um, and so, so some of it will be uh, in the short term there's going to be just I think increased caution um, and restraint from the court when it makes factual assertions. Um, but I think there will also be um, things like the fact check and people taking the Supreme Court on on questions of fact and, and empirical questions. And I think that, as we say at the end of our article, is 
a, uh, a salutary development and another thing on Constitution Day uh, that should be celebrated and encouraged that, that the people are also a participant uh, in, in the process of, of making constitutional law. Thank you, David. It does seem sometimes like sex offender status is pre-crime from Minority Report. Um, next up will be David G. Post, who's a former professor of law at the Beasley School of Law at Temple University, where he taught intellectual property law and the law of cyberspace. He's also an adjunct here at Cato, a contributor to the Vala Conspiracy, and a member of the Cato Supreme Court Review Editorial Board. David. So let me just say, uh, David Goldberg and I have known each other for many years, but I did not know you represented James Brown. Um, so in the developing theme here, uh, so I, rep I see Manny Klausner here in the, uh, in the first row. I represented Matt Drudge many years ago. So it's not exactly James Brown, but you know. Yes. We'll see if you have a... He has less. He's got a lot less soul than James Brown does. Uh, so I, I talk today, uh, my talk today is about Nelson versus Colorado. Uh, let me begin by saying this was not the most important the most interesting, the most controversial, or the most complicated, or the most far-reaching, or the most doctrinally rich case the court decided in 2016. But I do think it may have been the oddest and the quirkiest. And I will try to explain what I mean by that in what follows. But if your taste in Supreme Court opinions runs to the odd and quirky, Nelson is for you. Odd and quirky Supreme Court decisions sometimes, often, go quickly to that place that Supreme Court opinions go to die. They vanish from the landscape. Uh, but sometimes they find fertile ground and they take root, often quite far away from the patch of the legal garden where they had originally fallen. And in the second half of my talk, I'll try to sketch out some of the re reasons why I think Nelson might be one of those cases, uh, that notwithstanding its quirkiness, uh, it will have some larger significance down the road. Uh, the facts are pretty simple, again. Uh, in 2006, Shannon Nelson was convicted in Colorado criminal court of two felonies and three misdemeanors arising from the uh, alleged sexual and physical abuse of her children. The trial court sentenced her to 20 years to life in prison. Uh, she was also ordered, in accordance with Colorado law, uh, to pay certain costs and fees amounting to around $8,000, which included $7,000 for a victim restitution fund. Uh, Nelson couldn't pay, uh, so consequently during her incarceration in prison, again per the usual procedures, Colorado periodically deducted money from her inmate account as she was earning money uh, uh, in prison to satisfy the debt that she owed to the state. In 2009, her conviction was overturned on the grounds that improper expert testimony had been allowed at her trial. A new trial was ordered, a new jury was impaneled, and at the second trial, she was acquitted of all charges. The state did not appeal, and she was released from prison. In the three years that she had been in prison, the state had deducted about $700 from her prison account. And now that she was acquitted, she wanted the money back. Um, seems pretty reasonable. Uh, the only basis for the assessment had been her earlier conviction. Uh, she wouldn't have owed any money had she not been convicted. Uh, now that the conviction had been voided, uh, she seems to me like she should get that money back. But that get, turned out to be difficult. Uh, she filed a motion with the trial court that had acquitted her, uh, seeking an order requiring the state to return the money that they had taken from her account. To make a long procedural story short, after several appeals, 
the Colorado Supreme Court ended up denying her request. The court held first, this Colorado Supreme Court, held first that the trial court can't order the state to pay money to anyone unless it has specific statutory authority to do so. The allocation of public money is a legislative and not a judicial prerogative, the court held. And the trial court, in other words, has no inherent authority to order the state to refund Nelson's money. It needed express legislative direction to do so. Next, the court found that there was express legislative direction to do so, to return Nelson's money, in a statute known as the Colorado Exoneration Act. And let me say a word about the Colorado Exoneration Act. Colorado Exoneration Act dates to 2011. Colorado joined a number of other states, providing a civil remedy for people who had been wrongfully imprisoned. Wrongfully imprisoned in a very specific sense, that they could prove that they had been, that they could prove that they had been convicted of crimes that they did not, in fact, commit. The statute provides for fairly substantial compensation to exonerees, $70,000 per year of imprisonment, tuition waivers at state institutions of higher learning for life for all family members, uh, attorney's fees, child support payments that they may have missed during imprisonment, and other benefits. Now, Shannon Nelson wasn't exonerated in this sense. Her acquittal, of course, doesn't prove that she was factually innocent of the crimes with which she was charged. No verdict of acquittal does that. Juries in criminal cases are not asked, do you think the defendant did or did not commit the crime? They're asked, did the government present evidence that proved, beyond a reasonable doubt, that the defendant committed the crime? It's a very different question. Many persons are acquitted even though they're factually guilty. Uh, everybody recognizes this, and indeed, the criminal just our criminal justice system is set up to achieve this result. Now, the Exoneration Act not only provides compensation to exonerees, it also provides, somewhat incidentally, that exonerees can receive reimbursement for fines, penalties, costs, costs and restitution that were paid as a result of the wrongful conviction. And this, of course, was what Shannon Nelson was looking for, reimbursement for fines, costs, fees, and reimbursement. So the Colorado Supreme Court says to Nelson, there's your explicit statutory authorization for the court to give you what you're looking for, for the court to give you reimbursement. Go file a claim under the Exoneration Act to get your money back. The problem, though, is that the Exoneration Act places the burden on claimants, like Shannon Nelson, to prove their factual innocence, and to do so, moreover, by clear and convincing evidence to prove that they were actually innocent of the crime charge. In other words, Nelson will have to prove that she was factually innocent of the crimes charged, not merely that she had been acquitted and thereby legally innocent, but that she actually did not commit those crimes in order just to get her money back. Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, it seems, right, unfair. Proving factual innocence can be very difficult. I did not collude with the Russians to interfere with the 2016 election. But proving that I didn't is a fairly difficult undertaking when you think about it. I'm not even sure how I would go about it. Asking Shannon Nelson to prove by clear and convincing evidence that she did not abuse her children just so she could get her money back, money to which the state no longer had a legal entitlement, seems outrageous, indefensible. Once her conviction has been overturned, she doesn't have to show that she was factually innocent in order to have her liberty restored released from prison. So why should she have to prove she's factually innocent to have her property restored? Now, Nelson's predicament 
and here's odd feature number one in this case, was entirely the product of legislative inadvertence. The Colorado legislators who passed the Exoneration Act did not have Shannon Nelson's situation in mind. This is unlike the Packingham defendants. Um, nobody intended that people like Nelson, who was not seeking special compensation but for the time she spent in prison, but just a return of the money she had paid, um, would have to prove their factual innocence before getting their money back. And how do I know it was legislative in inadvertence? Because after the Supreme Court granted cert in the Nelson case, but before the court even heard oral argument in the case, Colorado legislature unanimously changed the law, enacted a new law which eliminates the requirement of proving factual innocence for persons in Nelson's shoes, allowing them to obtain reimbursement directly from the, file, from the trial court once their conviction has been vacated and without having to satisfy the Exoneration Act requirements. So that's odd feature number two of this case. It's not that unusual for a legislature to amend the statute after the Supreme Court has given its interpretation of what the statute means or after the court has declared it unconstitutional. But to do so while a challenge is pending before the Supreme Court is unusual, and to do so unanimously. Now, the new statute didn't technically moot Shannon Nelson's claim because it didn't take effect until this past September 1st, just two weeks ago. Uh, but it sure narrowed the scope of the case. Colorado had already been the only state that required, or apparently had ever required, proof of factual innocence before issuing a refund of costs and fees. And now even Colorado was abandoning that position. This was a controversy that affected a relatively tiny handful of people, those who, like Nelson, was seeking a refund prior to the effective date of the new statute. A hot legal issue of great national significance, this was not. And the court could easily have chosen to dig this case, to dismiss it as having been improvidently granted after the new statute had been passed. Uh, I'm not sure why it didn't, we can only speculate, uh, but it may be that at least some of the justices had something they wanted to say and thought that the case, though it dealt with the narrowest of controversies, was a good vehicle to use to say it. Which brings me to odd feature number three of the case, which is what did the court say? The court, Supreme Court, had no difficulty uh, reversing the Colorado court and declaring by a vote of seven to one, Justice Gorsuch not participating, and Justice Thomas, the only dissenter, uh, declaring that Colorado's existing procedure unconstitutionally deprived Shannon Nelson of her property without due process of law. Justice Ginsburg wrote for the six-person majority, and Justice Alito wrote separately concurring in the result. Uh, the court, the majority opinion, made much, not surprisingly, of Colorado's apparent reversal of the presumption of innocence. Absent conviction of a crime, the court wrote, one is presumed innocent. Court described this principle correctly as axiomatic and elementary. Everybody watches TV knows that. Um, lies at the foundation of our criminal law, principle of justice so rooted in tradition and conscience of our people as to be ranked as fundamental. Nelson, now that her conviction has been erased, is, quote, entitled to be presumed innocent. Quote, once her conviction was erased, the presumption of her innocence was restored. Cal Colorado may not presume a person adjudged guilty of no crime, nonetheless guilty enough for monetary exaction. So it seems straightforward enough. 
Um, it accords well, I think, with the reaction that most people have when they hear about the case, the reaction I had when I heard about the case. Uh, the presumption of innocence is surely a constitutionally protected principle. Colorado had abrogated it, turned it upside down. Um, it can't do that. Um, and maybe that's all that's going on in this case. But I think there's actually more going on here, and which might give us a clue as to the ways in which this case, though it is such a narrow uh, controversy, might indeed have legs uh, going forward. The presumption of innocence is, of course, of fundamental constitutional significance. It declares that criminal defendants must be presumed innocent of all charges and that the government, as a consequence, bears the burden of proving each and every element of the crime. It's not actually a presumption, by the way, but I'll leave that. I talk about that in the article. Um, calling this a presumption is bothers a lot of people, because it's not. But I'll let you read about that. I don't have time to cover that here. Um, due process, of course, requires that Shannon Nelson receive the benefit of the presumption of innocence. And she did. When she was a criminal defendant, which she was twice, she was presumed innocent, just as the Constitution requires. At her trials, the burden had been correctly placed on the prosecutor to prove her guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. If Colorado, in those criminal proceedings, had required her to prove her innocence, that would, of course, have been unconstitutional and an easy case. But that's not what Colorado did. Shannon Nelson, in this case, is not a criminal defendant. It's odd feature number three. All criminal proceedings against her have concluded. She's no longer on trial. And she's, in fact, she's not even a defendant anymore. She's the claimant. She's a plaintiff in a civil action against the state of Colorado under the Exoneration Act. Yes, Colorado has placed the burden on her to prove her innocence in that action. But what of it? Why does she get to invoke the presumption of innocence here? And that the court was willing to let her do so, it's eager, in fact, in its opinion, to talk about that, in a civil action that was related to, but not part of, the criminal process is, I think, the important message hidden in this case. The little acorn from which a reasonably sized oak may grow. Why does she get to invoke the presumption of innocence? Because it was her property that the state had taken, pursuant to a determination that she had engaged in criminal conduct. If she wants to get that property back on the grounds that the state is not entitled to it, she gets the benefit of the presumption of innocence. She cannot be required to prove that she did not, in fact, engage in the underlying criminal conduct. The state must bear the burden of proving that she did. And if that's what this case stands for, I think it will have significant ramifications indeed. There are many places in the law, most notably in the civil asset forfeiture context that has gotten so much attention, deservedly so, in recent years, where that principle is not honored and where a form of burden shifting to the claimant is, in fact, the rule. In many states, for example, property can be seized if the government has probable cause, probable cause, to believe that it was used in the commission of a crime. And if you want to get it back, the owner must prove that it was, must, must prove that it was not used in the commission of a crime. The burden is on the claimant. Uh, I think Nelson raises real doubt about the constitutionality of these practices, and it may prove to be very important in the fight against asset forfeitures more generally. Thank you.
Thank you, David. And moving on to something more salacious, securities regulation, we will have Thea Brooke-Knight, a colleague here at Cato, who's Associate Director of Financial Regulation Studies, uh, with extensive experience in securities regulation, small business capital access, and capital markets. Before joining Cato, she co-founded and served as General Counsel of CrowdCheck, a company providing due diligence and disclosure services in the online investing market. She holds a BA from Middlebury College and a JD from the University of Michigan Law School. Thea? So I found the thread that ties these together, which is that uh, you mentioned an oak. Our brief in this case opened with an acorn that grew into a judicial Ooh. oak. So um, I do not have any uh, sex in my <laughs> presentation. I'm sorry. Um, or sex offenders. Because um, it's always, you know, uh, securities law always fascinating in that way. Um, <laughs> So I, I do want to talk about one of the um, most interesting parts of securities regulation, or actually not regulation, but securities uh, criminal law, um, which is insider trading. And before we get into the details of the, the case that the court heard this past term, uh, Salman, I want to talk about insider trading generally, because I think that in some ways Salman is important in its lack of doing anything important. Um, and I was deeply disappointed uh, in the outcome of this case, not only because of the way that it went, um, which was not the way I had hoped it would, but also the lack of guidance that the court provided in its opinion. Um, so insider trading is a felony. Um, it can carry a penalty of up to 10 years. That's not a cap. That's just um, we haven't had a, a sentence of longer than about that long. But putting someone away for 10 years is already a pretty extreme penalty. You would assume um, that if we have a, fel a felony, um, that there would be some law that would tell people this is a felony and what you should do to avoid committing the felony. This is the thing about insider trading law is there is no law. Um, this is a court-created crime. So it does tie back to a statute. Um, the statute is the part of the Securities uh, Act of 33. And so you can't, this goes, or I guess 34. Um, the law is when you're engaging in a securities transaction, you can't commit fraud. Um, so that's something that's fairly straightforward. We have a long common law history of what fraud is. We have some idea um, of what constitutes fraud. You know, somebody tells a lie intentionally to somebody else and gets them to rely on it to their detriment, fraud. Um, so we have that. It, the, in the uh, securities law, uh, it has been understood that that prohibition in the statute applies a little bit more broadly than common law fraud. Um, but still, it's a concept that's pretty broadly understood and well developed. Um, the courts and the SEC uh, started taking this concept and applying it in ways that is very difficult to square with the concept of fraud. Um, and this is my fundamental problem um, with how insider trading law has developed. So my first problem is that we don't have a law. Um, my second problem is that the way it has developed, um, it is very difficult to understand what the law is trying to do. Um, so the way it developed is, you know, the, the first insider trading case that's really recognized as an insider trading case is fairly recent. It's from 1961. Um, and in that case, there was uh, somebody who was part of a board, and he received information about earnings, and he communicated 
these, this information to his business partner, who then communicated that to other people who traded on it. And they said, look, you're using inside information um, from your position as this board member in order to benefit yourself through this insider trading. And that, you know, you start to think about that and you think, well, how is that a fraud? Um, and the argument is that we have this non-public material information, um, and that's, that's, I know that's a lot of securities jargon, non-public, I think we all get that. The general public doesn't know about it, it's secret. Material has a very specific meaning in securities law. And if you think about it as information that's likely to move the price of the security, that's not really what it is, but that's kind of how it functions. Um, so this is important information. Um, so if you have that and you trade on it and everybody else in the market doesn't know about it, you have a secret advantage. Um, okay, and I'll discuss in a little bit about why even that could be a problem to have a law based on that, but at least we understand that. You know something that nobody else knows, you go out there without telling anybody about it and you go make a trade on it. So easy, right? Well, then we have another case. Um, in 1973, we have Dirks. In that case, it was, the facts were a little bit different. Um, Dirks had a friend who was uh, an insider at a company, and there was massive fraud going on. And this insider said to his friend Dirks, hey, you know, there's all this fraud going on. You have to uncover it. You have to shine a light on this. And Dirks did that. Um, he went to an editor at the Wall Street Journal and said, hey, there's this massive fraud going on. You have to run a story. The editor declined, uh, couldn't believe that the fraud was so widespread and was worried about a libel suit. Uh, Dirks also told some of his clients who then went and traded on the information. And uh, the SEC, also, and what happened was eventually this fraud came out, massive story, the Wall Street Journal ran a front page article about it at that point. Um, and Dirks himself was censored by the SEC. And when this case came up before the Supreme Court, it was very clear that the court was uncomfortable with somebody being censored by the SEC for doing something that ultimately uncovered such a massive fraud. So they said, no, that's not insider trading because he was trying to, he wasn't doing this for, to make secret profits. What he was doing this for was to uncover a fraud. And importantly for the Salman case, there was, there's dictum in that case that says, there are other situations where someone may communicate information with a purpose, for example, of making a gift of the information to a trading relative or friend. This isn't the case, and therefore, this was not insider trading. Okay, um, so that gives us another data point um, as we're trying to plot this line of what insider trading looks like, which we're still trying to tie it back to that fraud, but um, at least we're developing sort of the shape of what this crime looks like. Um, so then we have uh, Chiarella. This guy works at an inside, is a uh, financial printers. And you can make arguments about how anybody who works at a financial printer should know that the information that they're dealing with is secret and not something you could be traded, trading on. But that's not the argument that the government made at trial. What they argued was Chiarella had access to non-public information. What he had done was he was um, he had some documents and he guessed at what kind of merger, at what companies were having a merger based on these documents and went and traded on that. So um, mergers, obviously very sensitive information. If you trade ahead of a merger, you're probably going to make money if nobody else knows that this merger is happening. 
Um, so the government said, look, he had access to uh, non-public material information that he traded on, and that is insider trading. And the court said, no, no, no. He didn't have any particular duty to the company in whose uh, securities he was transacting. So it's not just anybody is barred from trading on material non-public information. It's somebody who has this special relationship uh, with the source of the information so that they're breaching some sort of duty. Right, that, that complicates things a little bit more because now you have to figure out whether the, it's not just you know, material non-public information, it's also you have to look for this kind of duty. Um, and then the last case before Solomon came out I think is remarkable in just it's kind of the opposite of Dirks. Um, so the, the case before Salman was O'Hagan. And O'Hagan was a partner at a big law firm. And that firm was working on a merger um, for one of its clients. O'Hagan himself was not uh, working on this case, but his position as partner gave him access to documents that showed this merger was happening. He had been embezzling client funds from another client. And so then you traded on this information and then was going to use the proceeds from those trades to cover up his embezzlement. So just a bad person, right? So um, I mean, that's really easy. So that's why this is, the diff this is the opposite of Dirk. So you look at Dirks and you say, you know, white knight trying to uncover fraud. You look at O'Hagan, very bad lawyer. Um, that's not what criminal law should turn on. Um, the facts should matter because the facts matter in terms of whether this moves toward the harm we're trying to prevent. It shouldn't matter what the person's thoughts or motivations were in conducting the bad act. And that's why this uh, harm is part of the question. And I promise I will get to Solomon, but I think that it's important to lay this foundation for why Solomon was such a disappointment. Um, so my, even if we had a law against insider trading, even if Congress went and wrote down a law, I still think I'd have a problem with it because it's not clear what the harm is that we're trying to prevent. When we have something that we punish people with a year to 10 years in prison, we should be able to articulate very clearly what is the bad thing that came from this. So if you take murder, for example, easy. There is a bad thing, whether that was a murder or an accident or a justified killing, somebody's dead. We can point to that and say, it is a bad thing that person is dead. Um, insider trading, what does that do? Well, it introduces material information into the market. The purpose behind securities markets, the, the real function that they have that is so beneficial is that they help to allocate the resources to their best use within our society. The reason that a company's stock goes up should be because it's doing something very valuable. It's coming out with a product that people want. It's developing a life-saving drug. We want to push more resources toward those kinds of activities because we all benefit from them. And the way the market determines where the money goes is through these price signals. As people are in the marketplace trading securities, if somebody is paying a little bit more, that gives a signal to everybody that, wait, that company's doing something that's good. If people are dumping their shares, I mean, if the CEO comes out and dumps all of her shares without knowing anything else about the company, I think you know what's going on with the company. That is a very strong signal. 
So whenever you have material information that is not public, and this requires a little bit of thinking, so bear with me, you have material information that the market doesn't know about. That means that the market price for that security is not right. It doesn't reflect the true value of the company. So if there's a merger that is in process but hasn't gone through yet, then the price that that security is trading at the day before the merger is announced is wrong. So the people who are buying it are probably getting it cheap, and the people who are selling it are selling it cheap. Um, so there's a benefit to material information moving into the market. So in some ways, insider trading, because every trade is a form of communicating information, is conducting a good. It is moving this information into the market. Unfortunately, there's this tension where there's this feeling that somebody's, somebody's playing the system if they are using inside information. It's unfair. And so the courts have tried to sort of play this out to say, well, we don't want this unfair advantage, but we don't want to unjustly, you know, unduly restrict the flow of information. And I think that's why we get these strange results that seem to be sort of all over the map and very dependent on how the court feels about the people involved. So in Salman, um, we had a case that went to this gift question. Um, this involved three men in the same family, a pair of brothers, Michael and Maher, and their brother-in-law, Basam Salman. And Maher was an insider at uh, Citigroup. He was, and he's not the insider, but he was trading and dealing with some uh, M&A clients who were the, whose uh, deal was going through. And he started to give information to his brother, Michael. And initially, he gave the information to his brother um, because he wanted his brother's help, because his brother had a science degree and he thought his brother could help him. Then he started sharing information with his brother because their father was dying and he was dealing in the healthcare sector and he thought maybe some of these drugs might be helpful for their dad if they could get him some access. And then, he, as he testified at least, he gave him the information because he wanted his brother to trade on it and make money. Um, it seemed the brother was pressuring him and there's a lot of you know, family dynamics going here. Um, and eventually, Ma Michael communicated this information to their brother-in-law, Basam Salman. Um, and so then the question is, all right, so we have this situation where if you, if you trade on the information yourself as an insider, bad. If you give the information to somebody else and tell them, go trade on that, that's bad because that's the same as you trading on it. If you give them the information, say, go trade and give me your profits, it's the same thing. So what if you give them the information, they go trade on it, but they don't give you anything? Is that a problem too? Well, in this case, um, the court found that it was because this is a gift. But now we have to figure out, well, what makes it a gift? I mean, these were brothers, so maybe it's, but what if it's your neighbor that you give the information to? Is that a gift? And so what I want to do is I want to quickly read um, the elements, as I see them, of the crime of insider trading as it's outlined in Solomon. Now, anybody who's been through law school knows in first year crim, the first thing in criminal law, what you do is you learn how to break down a crime into its elements because the government has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt each one of those elements. Now, if you are already being brought before the court um, and accused of this crime, more elements works to your favor because that's more things that the government has to prove. But I think when we make a law, we want people to not do the, the crime, right? We want to make the law something that people avoid committing the crime. And in this case, 
uh, in order to not commit the crime that Solomon was uh, found guilty of, you have to make sure that you're not a person who is an insider, that you don't obtain information that is material, non-public, executes a, then execute a securities transaction based on that information, six elements. That you don't hold a position in which you owe a duty of trust, that you didn't obtain that information by virtue of that position, that you disclose, didn't disclose the information to somebody, that that person didn't obtain a benefit, and that that benefit isn't personal. And there are, that was, uh, there were about seven more elements to this crime. So you can sit, if you're sitting there trying to think through, how do I not commit the crime? It's going to require a law degree to figure out how to not commit the crime. And that's not what we want. And this goes back to the, the problem that I articulated um, with securities law. We don't know what the harm is. If you don't want to commit murder, and I know that's a really easy one, but I think it's so easy it helps crystallize the problem. If you don't want to commit murder, you try not to make anybody dead. If you want to not commit insider trading, well, I mean, most of our securities transactions are based on using material information to execute transactions. And a lot of it comes down to how do you get the information? Getting information is perfectly fine. Um, if you get information because you watch trucks leaving a factory and say, oh, look, they must be shipping something new. There are a lot of new trucks. I'm going to go invest in this company. Great. Good for you. You just benefited the market. So when we have something that's a criminal law, we want to make sure that we clearly identify the harm and that we clearly articulate what it is you are supposed to not do so that you don't cause that harm. Because Avoiding the harm is what we mean when we talk about the spirit of the law as opposed to the letter of the law. Insider trading, unfortunately, is a law with no letter because it's not written down that nonetheless requires you to understand every letter of Supreme Court precedent to ensure that you adhere to the letter of the law. So, thank you. Thank you, Thea. Now, it said in the statute that you have to go do a, a transaction, correct? Yes. So you, if you decide not to do a transaction because of insider information, they can't get you for that, right? No, and that's the other thing. Thank you for raising that point. Um, if you are a company insider and you know a merger is going through tomorrow and you hold a security that you were otherwise going to sell, um, but you know that it's going to double in price tomorrow because you have inside information, your decision not to sell is not insider trading, even though it's a, transa it's a decision about trading that you made based on non-material, uh, um, material non-public information. So insider non-trading is legal, yes. apparently. Or, now, and uh, for David Goldberg, the first qu important question is, what is your favorite James Brown song? <laughs> it's, and why is it Get On Up? Yeah. Okay, that is it. All right. <laughs> <laughs> and second, opening if we're opening up, uh, looking at sex offenders, per perhaps trying to get to the facts as they stand with all these restrictions, trying to understand you know who's actually dangerous and whether they're dangerous. Do you see the do you see Packingham opening up attacks on other restrictions that sex offenders face? Great. So th there's a case now. Uh, there's been a cert petition case, uh, Snyder versus Doe from the Sixth Circuit which struck down a num on ex post facto grounds a number of uh, Michigan's um, 
restrictions that are much more, that are not speech restrictions. And so I think in that case, uh, Judge Batchelder wrote the opinion, a very strong opinion, where she really interrogated the actual facts in a way that lower courts have not done in the last 15 years. She didn't cite Packingham, but, and then the, the U.S. was invited to file a brief and they recommended that the court not take the case and that the Sixth Circuit decision would stand. And that also was based on their saying that these earlier Doe decisions did not actually approve the substantive limitations that, that states across the country have imposed. So I think, I think that these ideas and this skepticism about the facts and the allocation of the proof is going to bleed into other constitutional claims, both state constitutions, procedural due process, and ex post facto. I'm going to open it up for questions. We have about 10 minutes uh, for questions here. All right. Anything ah, here in front? First prerogative there. And then, yeah. Uh, Stephen Keat, uh, private citizen. Uh, Professor Goldberg, I found your presentation very interesting. That you spent a fair amount of time talking about uh, whether it is fair or unfair to say that sex offenders are more likely to do things again as compared to you know other members of the criminal class, what I'll call the criminal class. Um, I'm wondering if that really matters or not. Because there's nothing, I believe, in the Constitution that says we have to have a statistical analysis of whether murderers are more likely to murder again or whether robbers are more likely to rob. So, I mean, while I can understand to a certain extent why you're talking about that, um, is it relevant? So I think that's a great question. I, I don't know that it is relevant. The Supreme Court has said repeatedly, citing these fairly spurious statistics, that they are different in kind from other offenders, and it has relied on recidivism rates. And one of the things that influences this is the Supreme Court had a case, Kansas versus Hendricks, which was about somebody who has a, you know, was portrayed, I think, accurately as having a compulsion, a, you know, a psychiatric disorder that compelled him to offend against children again. And so that idea, that vision of a sex offender and ultimately his civil commitment was upheld very narrowly by the court. It was subject to a lot of procedural safeguards. So there may be extreme cases where if a jury determines beyond a reasonable doubt that you cannot control yourself um, and will offend again, that is relevant. But as, as Trevor was saying, there is this whole element of pre-crime that people, it's just not something our legal system has ever considered that if you're X percent more likely to commit an offense either through some statistical inference or anything, that doesn't mean that you lose your liberties on that basis. So I, I do agree with you that it's not, it shouldn't be relevant. But but let me just add, because as, as David knows, David and I worked together on the Packingham case and I've been involved in some of these uh, other sex offender cases. Um, I think it, it has been relevant in the defense of most of these statutes. These are individuals who are no longer part of the criminal justice system. They're not on parole. They're not on probation. They're not in prison. They could be sitting in the audience. They're free as you and me. So what is the justification for saying you can't live within 2,000 feet of a church or a school or a playground? 
Well, the justification that has been given is that you are notwithstanding the fact that you are not, you are particularly likely to commit some crime if you are at a school or a church or a playground. Um, if that's not true, if it is true, there are still constitutional issues involved, but if it's not true factually, if you've just chosen someone sort of at random in effect and placed these burdens upon them, I think that that raises very serious, much more serious constitutional issues. And that's the only justification for most of these laws, in fact. The disclosure thing is different. I mean, that's the, 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 the laws requiring sex offenders to disclose that they are convicted sex offenders and that they live at such and such a place um, is one set of cases. But, we're but when we're talking about the restrictions on employment, on habitation, on where you can live, on where you can go, on the internet sites you can visit, those are based entirely on the presumed fact that you're more likely to commit crimes if you do so in the state is therefore protecting its citizens by burdening you in this way. And I think if, if those are not true, um, I think they raise very serious constitutional problems. I, I personally do not feel safe uh, entrusting the American Psychological Association to determine these things in an organization that thought homosexuality was a mental disorder until 1973. Uh, yeah, in the back there, right, uh, the gold buttons, yeah. <laughs> Uh, Carl Galvin, you mentioned what's true, and uh, Professor Knight mentioned what uh, that in the law it should say what we should not do. And I wonder if underlying our somewhat hyper-regulated society is what we use as money, which arguably isn't constitutional, and whether the Supreme Court might at some future date address that subject, since Article 1, Section 10, no state shall make anything but gold and silver coin a tender and payment of debt. Now, we seem far away from that, but considering insider trading, the... Uh, Futures markets, the commodity futures markets, are, are manipulated to artificially suppress the perceived value of gold and silver, prohibiting people from securing some of their wealth as what used to constitutionally circulate as gold and silver coin money. So is the ultimate insider trading manipulation of our artificial system of credit borrowed into existence at usury through a system of privately controlled central banks? Thea, would you like that? <laughs> Question from a colleague, Selton, yeah, yeah, it's George expert. Yeah. Um, but you know, I think that that raises other questions. Where I think that when we get into the financial area, we kind of lose our heads, and and things that are easily defined in one place. When we're talking about other sort of commercial transactions, we treat totally differently when we're dealing with financial tra transactions, um, and some of that makes it easier for the government, especially in, for example, a major financial crisis, to take steps that would otherwise seem to be illegal for the government to take, but that, uh, because I think a lot of people, when they hear finance, they just kind of shut down and think that it's too hard, or I don't really think it is, um, that it makes it easier for these types of manipulations by the government to happen, because people aren't paying attention as much. Anyone take a bath on Bitcoin recently? Uh, I have time for one more short question, and then after we're over here, please remain seated because we're going to move right into the next panel. Uh, Jack, back there. That way for the mic, please. Uh, thank you. Uh, Jack Brown, I'm a student at the Antonin Scalia Law School at George Mason. 
Um, I had a question re regarding Professor Post's statement about civil forfeiture. Um, do you think that the court will hear any forfeiture cases within the next couple of years? And if so, how do you think it'll go? Very good chance that they will. Justice Thomas, there's an interesting, another interesting sort of odd backstory in the, in the Nelson case. Justice Thomas was the only dissenter um, uh, and was willing to hold that this procedure to have Shannon Nelson get back her money was, was constitutional. Um, notwithstanding the fact that he has been very forceful in re recent, in a recent, there was a denial of cert recently um, in which he uh, uh, issued a lengthy statement um, saying well, that this case, I can't remember the name exactly, um, that this case is not appropriate for cert, perhaps, um, because of the procedural posture, but it was a forfeiture case. Uh, but we need to address this. This is a growing national problem. Um, there seemed to, it seems to be out of control. It's saying all the right things. Um, so I, I think given that he's interested in it, clearly, um, and that the opinion in Nelson, I think, suggests that at least some of the other justices from across the ideological spectrum, I think, are concerned about these procedures involved in taking people's property from them um, and, and putting hurdles in front of them to, uh, uh, before they can get it back. I think it's an, I would bet, if not this term, I would bet within one or two years, um, I would literally be willing to, to, to place money on fact that they will grant cert in one of these cases, um, I think. Please join me in thanking our panel and bringing up my colleague Walter Olson for the next panel.